Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra and I'm Gayatri. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Sanjay Tamwekar, our guest this week on the Software People Stories, got his first taste of engineering at shipyards watching his father build barges. Thereafter, he graduated from IIT Bombay and later with a master's in computer science from the US, after which he was exposed to systems engineering through a brief stint at Bell Labs. Back in India, he was part of the supercomputer team at CDAC, later digital payments at Verifone where he stepped into management and then worked in telecom networks and solutions at Saskin. data storage at netapp where he had global teams responsibility and now at quicksilver where he is the cto he talks about his transitions to management and his current role as a cto in his current organization a project close to sanjay and his wife centers around road safety on which he shares a strong message and as always this episode closes with a message for those aspiring to have a career in it and software listen on so hi sanjay a very warm welcome to you on the software people stories podcast I've been looking forward to our conversation and thank you so much for being here. Thank you Chitra, looking forward to the conversation. It's been a while since we uh, chatted but yeah, this has been really interesting to know what you're doing and I'm happy that I can actually share my story here. Great, thank you. So we begin usually by asking our guests to introduce themselves and so how would you like to do that for our listeners? I am Sanjay Tamwekar. and as the cto i lead the evolution of the prepaid solutions at quicksilver now we are merging into pine labs so we'll soon be pine labs and prior to this my journey covers different domains uh, parallel computing payments telecom digital storage so that's uh, on the professional side and in the on the personal side in the memory of our daughter my wife and i run the arundhati foundation with a primary focus to improve road safety that's nice sanjay thanks so much like to start by you know in terms of asking you where did your interest in software or technology come from and where did your segue into this domain begin how far do you go back i go up, uh, uh, go back a long way but uh, technology wise uh, it's probably been you know right from the very early days my dad was a marine engineer and he started uh, the tempo engineering works in goa and i used to go to those workshops of his where they built barges and you know i was quite fascinated by all the uh, machinery and how they put things together etc so engineering as a discipline and you know what it means was something that i liked very early on in my days plus of course the natural inclination maybe towards math and physics and so on it was there the, the engineering mindset was probably always there uh, but serendipity brought me into software okay i'm sure that i would have been in a related field but, uh, software per se was a little bit of a serendipity uh, when i did my btech from iit mumbai i graduated in uh, electronics and communications you know that was actually at that time called double e and uh, electronics communications signal processing were my favorite subjects then and i was to go to my master for my masters to the us but those days uh, when we got stuff by snail mail uh, my i20 did not arrive in time 
And uh, as the university was not okay to defer the joining date, I chose to basically pick up a job in Mumbai and I landed a job in TUL. You know, while I was introduced to computers, even during my engineering days, uh, my role in TUL was purely software, right? And then it actually got me interested in some of the various nuances of the software industry, algorithms and all the other stuff. And then I went on to do my master's. But this time I applied in computer science. And uh, yes, I mean, it was indeed fortunate that I got into computer science, though I did not have any background at that time. And uh, that experience at TUL did help me. And after completing that, it was very clear that, you know, my path would be in implementing or designing software systems and software solutions. But I was, a lot of my work was actually closer to the systems, right, um, uh, for a long time. And then, of course, went into payments, which became a little bit of a higher level. But a lot of my work was at the systems level. So that was how I got started. That's interesting, Sanjay. So from those early days in software development and building systems and solutions, what were some of your early lessons that you took away and perhaps helped you later on in your career? You know, at each stage, you do pick up some things which are key and and valuable and, and those experiences stay with you, right? A lot of the experiences are through the hard situations that you encounter, the difficulties that you encounter. And those are things that actually stay with you longer. My first stint was with uh, Bell Northern Research. Actually, that was after I completed my master's. And it was a short stint. But I actually got to understand the difficulties in debugging a system that is remote. And what does it really mean to access a a system that is, uh, you know, sitting in North Carolina and a system that is running in Canada? And what does it mean to debug that system? Um, And those were some of the elements that have actually stayed with me in terms of what does it really mean to build enterprise software. From there, I came to India and I was part of the first uh, team that uh, CDAC put together uh, to build our supercomputer. My focus was uh, uh, in the software team and we were building software to support four nodes to 64 nodes. Uh, And it was, again, a very uh, heady time for us because a lot of learning, a lot of new things to pick up and understand how things can be put together. But more importantly, actually taking it to the people who really need to use it. And so to help some of the users uh, from the government labs mainly to adapt their software to our systems. And that was also interesting, right? Because we were trying to build some features into our products, which for them probably was, was an over engineering. They didn't really need those. Once we realized that we actually dropped those. But in a few years, it became evident that Moore's law will catch up and the power of a single CPU will soon be the power of a four node or eight node parallel machine. And so it was actually a kind of a realization also in terms of how you have to really stay abreast of the technology and how you need to actually adapt. So we went on to actually then start using the power of network computing as opposed to trying to build a dedicated parallel system. From then on, when I moved to to Verifone, that was my introduction to to the world of digital payments. You know, we started building a product for the emerging markets. You know, this was meant for India, meant for... Southeast Asia, Latin America, the Middle East or Africa. So the idea was that these are not countries or or areas where you have very robust usage of digital payments and uh, you don't have as much of a a strong network. And so some solutions could be actually interesting in this context. And uh, we built our solution, which was an acquirer system on SEO Unix. Uh, You know, while we did succeed in all these markets and we had decent customers in these markets, 
the big breakthrough came when Bank of America got interested in the product and it pushed the envelope and the evolution of the product on many fronts. And very quickly, right, we in the team realized what it means again to to meet the demands of a customer that is actually uh, looking at enterprise class scale, enterprise class fault tolerance or resiliency, and related monitoring and you know related solutions. So it was actually a very, very significant learning that happened in that process. And this is where I moved into management, right? It was in my mind fairly earlier in, in my career, I might have actually preferred to be techni- uh, technical for a longer time, but it was the outcome of a situation where we did not have as many senior people around in the domain or the, or the technical skills. And I picked up the mantle. So those were some of the early learnings that I had, but some of those actually kind of got reinforced when I went to Saskin and I worked with Nortel um, in leading a team. So that team was, you know, in, the, in its peak was about 500 people. Uh, but we worked on software for wireless communications, you know, building the software that goes into base stations right from layer one signal processing up to the controllers and so on, the base station controllers, which is a whole traffic management, the administration and so on. And again, a big lesson in enterprise class software in multiple angles, right? Not just about high availability, high reliability, but also the process that is actually required to build a product that is of that caliber, right? And to be able to meet the expectations of finite availability and what does it really mean to gear up the systems, gear up the support and all that to be able to handle that. In that app, I would say the some of these things remain with me because again, building an enterprise class product uh, did require some of these fundamental understanding uh, of how the systems need to be handled. The more important thing over there for me was that over the six years uh, that I was there, or seven years, the org evolved and I was managing a global team split across India and US. So those lessons were very different in terms of managing a, a team in the US addressing uh, the demands on both sides, uh, but being able to be fair on both sides and so on. Journey at Quicksilver has been very, very different. And I'll talk to, about that in, the, in more detail because I think the last six years, my role as a CTO at, six, uh, at Quicksilver has been very, very interesting and, and has actually pushed me up to uh, learn and, and deliver something which was much more than I had done in the past. Certainly looking forward to that part as well, Sanjay. Have a whole lot of questions coming up. Two things caught my attention. One was when you said that, you know, you moved from Verifone to Saskin. Mm-hmm. And even before that, uh, an instance where one of your customers, uh, Bank of America, actually drove in some sense or gave the impetus to a very, very different kind of innovation yeah. and building out, uh, you know, the necessary infrastructure to support yeah. that. And the contrast to that was when you mentioned that in CDAC, after you were helping develop the software that's associated with the supercomputer and actually taking it to government labs and convincing people there that, hey, this could be useful to your daily work. And there I see two contrasts, right? So my question around it is uh, when it comes to customer empathy and building relationships with customers, what is it that you know, in your experience, you've seen that's helped you because these two are quite contrasting experiences. One where the customer is actually driving or leading in some sense. And you know that the product or the solution that you're creating has has more of a likelihood of success because it's coming, it's being driven largely by a customer's need or the customer's ability to see its value versus you being part of something that 
you know, could potentially help customers in many different ways, but customers really aren't ready for it. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, dichotomy. I wouldn't say necessarily that, uh, you know, those government labs were wrong in, in any way, right? I mean, they had a problem to solve and they had uh, the code to solve it. And it was basically, how do I port this to the new system and how I, do I use it the best way, right? I mean, it was as simple as that to, to start with. But you're right. Um, very often we, uh, we face this challenge. When we go to customers, there are some who grasp the potential. And that is also because they carry a vision with them, right? They, they do have a sense that they want to grow a business or they see that they want to harness the power of the technology and to be able to do things not just more efficiently, but do it differently and to bring more value. And if they have a vision and you're able to actually marry the two, it has a lot more benefit that, that you have. The cases where you are actually discussing it in the context of a task to be completed, it becomes a very transactional kind of an engagement where you need to get that solved. I mean, it does it is still important to be solved, but it may not really evolve a whole lot beyond that. And in a lot of these cases, right, uh, the approach of the customer or the way you engage with the customer uh, will make a difference because when you start engaging them as a partner and when you start actually discussing with them on possibilities or when you listen a little more, then you can actually bring out the possibilities rather than be in a position where the customer tells you this is a task to be done and please do it. So if you actually understand why, if you understand what is the real problem behind that ask, then you can actually see more possibilities. Or the other thing, of course, is the ability to actually bring the best practices from 10 different customers or 100 different customers that you have. And how does that actually feed in? So the knowledge that you get from the other customers and you know the overall confidence that you get in terms of bringing a solution to the table also increases that much when you have that variety in your, in your product mix. So some of these things actually evolve over a period of time. I can't say that you, you can get that upfront, but that empathy and the willingness to just listen a little bit and then position yourself, not necessarily trying to oversell, not necessarily trying to create a situation where you're overcommitting, but creating a path, right? That says that, okay, this is how we can evolve together. So perhaps more co-creating and involving customers and actually developing a solution that more of a win-win for both right. the, the creator and the consumer. Correct. You know, interesting that you said your first exposure to digital payments was way back then in, in Verifone and couldn't help but thinking what the scenario is with digital payments today. I mean, today, even a vegetable seller, and I had this experience last year, just as the lockdown yeah. was coming on, I had been a little reluctant to put a payment app on my phone. Mm -hmm. And one morning when I was picking up vegetables right outside my house, this person says, Amma, you don't have a Google Pay. And you know, mm -hmm. like a <laughs> aha moment right then and there, you said that these things evolve, you know, customer relationships and understanding and empathizing with them to build products evolves. And in the space of digital payments, I think, you know, it couldn't be more reflective of a of an example that's, that's suddenly now so all around us. What would you share with respect to that evolution? You know, there, there are various, various angles to digital payments, okay? I may not be able to touch upon all the uh, different aspects of it. And just to give you a flavor, right? There is the whole aspect of uh, payments, um, which you could do still using a 
a debit or a credit card, but digitally, right? Uh, you don't necessarily have to carry a physical card to do that. Uh, you have the ability to do what we do at Quicksilver that is actually prepaid cards. Your refunds and cashback could be purely digital. Your ability to transact uh, the, you know, uh, buy something would be completely digital without ever having to physically use a cash or, or a card anywhere. Banking could be completely digital. Uh, there are so many different aspects. Forex could be actually digital, cross-border payments and those kind of things also. So there are various elements in this. And uh, you know what we are doing at Quicksilver is in the domain of digital prepaid gift cards. The solution extends to things like uh, cashbacks, refunds, loyalty. So there are various elements. I mean, the underlying construct is versatile that you can actually do various other things with that, uh, being able to actually store some value and being able to convert that value when you actually utilize that. So this has actually been, when you think about the evolution, right? The uh, part of it has been the just the enablement of technology, what is available now and the ability to actually scale that uh, in the way we are able to do it with various technologies, whether it's the cloud or whether it is the way we can scale APIs or the way the way we can actually uh, do with microservices and such architectures. So various elements of technology. There is also the other element that comes into play in terms of how uh, some of these things are becoming open, right? So that we can interface uh, with other systems. I mean, in India, certainly NPCI is a, is, a, is a very, very solid payment infrastructure that we have, far better than what most other countries have. And, and this kind of an infrastructure actually allows us to do many, many things. And in that regard also, you know, the RBI has been forward-looking, okay? There has been definitely a good thinking in terms of how things should evolve. They're not stopped at NPCI. They're not looking at the next uh, generation of scale and what would it mean really, right, as we, we go to the next level. And certainly last year, like you rightly said, COVID situation completely flipped it, right? Cash was actually considered as, a, as an issue because the virus could spread via cash or by handling cards and so on. And so digital payments became more and more. I call it before Corona and after Corona effect, right? It is BC and AC. <laughs> uh, the, you know, that change is, is sort of uh, one, one directional in that sense, right? It is when th people get vaccinated and when the travel restrictions and other restrictions go, we, people will want to actually, you know, do things that they have not been able to do for one, one year. But from a payment point of view, I don't think they will go back on uh, the digital payments, they will even continue to do more of digital payments. We're at a really interesting point is what I'm thinking, you know, as you're speaking, also thinking that it's an interesting point in this conversation to kind of segue into the time when you moved from a more technical individual contributor role to management. What was that transition like for you is <laughs> my first question. Follow on question to that you know, when you said that in Saskin, you had a large team that was building wireless communication solutions. How was that transition for you? What were some of the things that you learned along that transition? So when I was um, first interested with the management responsibility, right, it was uh, a situation where we probably didn't have as many senior folks outside in the industry. And um, folks within Verifone entrusted me. I mean, they did Definitely, it was a lot of, uh, what shall I say? I mean, it was an endorsement or a vote of confidence uh, that I felt when they gave me that responsibility. And it was sort of a first among sequels because there was, we were basically a group of peers 
and um, um, the person who was managing our team actually moved to the U.S. because of this whole Bank of America uh, deal that was coming through and the, the reason to be very close to uh, the customer and, and work through some of those details with the customer. And in that process, when I started basically taking on the larger role, I started uh, in a mode where it's like a first amongst equals situation. But my learning was actually through the process of you know, recognizing that, yeah, you know, each one of my peers brought in a whole lot of strength. And so I always kept the ship in the leadership uh, in mind, right? Uh, it has to be actually that we, we do it together. I, I'm not really a guy who feels that I know everything. And, and so I do rely on the people to help me with the process and help me understand uh, what I do not. Uh, that has, I think, helped me a lot in terms of being able to understand what needs, uh, you know, what is the issue or what needs to be done. Uh, I do have to take responsibility for what I then decide to do, but I do take a lot of uh, inputs in the process. The Saskin experience was a very different one, right? Because there were two differences. One, of course, was that in, in Verifone, I was very much a part of the team that built the product. And so I knew a lot of things inside out. So I was able to relate to many things uh, directly. Right? In Saskin, that was not the case, right? This was a product that Nautil had built and we were actually taking it forward. And so there is, of course, one level of separation that, that happens. But more importantly, it was just the size of the team, right? the sheer size of the team meant that, yeah, you can't really be so detailed in each of those aspects. And so the organization building skills actually came to the fore, right? Because you do have to build a team that you can lean on. And for that, you need a lot of good people, right? You need to have the clarity about what is the good org structure. You need to have a clarity about how do you drive the lines of responsibility or accountability. You have to have the willingness to delegate or, or empower, uh, right? So people can take their own decisions and be able to execute and not become uh, bottlenecks. But you have to have a framework so that you know those exceptional conditions in which they have to reach out to you. So various of those things. And, creating the, the vision to align people, right? It may not be completely as per plan. I mean, you know, they, they may not really be things that you, you don't really worry about it in the context of saying that day-to-day -day or week-to-week, -week, is it exactly as per plan or not? But overall, it is going in the right direction. And because the scale is so big, then you and you still want to have a connect with the people, then you create other mechanisms to connect because... Uh, and you don't want to really make it a connection that is bypassing the lines of uh, authority, right? So you connect other mechanisms like coffee sessions. Okay, nowadays it's virtual coffee sessions, but ways in which you can actually connect or do some weekly roundups and communication. So everybody knows about key decisions, key customers, critical issues encountered, process improvements, innovations. All of those are important. And I've kept that going all through, right? That is an important part of actually keeping the team engaged, team aligned, and, and it actually is allowed me to have a connection with every single person in the team. It doesn't matter that I don't meet them on a daily basis or a weekly basis, right? But I'm connected because I have had those conversations in a smaller group with them. Those are some of the differences in the way that uh, I, adopt, uh, I adapted to that. But again, you know, coming to Quicksilver was again a very different story. <laughs> yeah, these have been actually probably some of the key, key elements of uh, uh, the differences in my roles and how I have grown in terms of a leadership role. My next question is that when you have led and headed large organizations, how do you get a pulse or a sense of you know what's going on? One thing is yes, uh, through these connects, 
you do understand whether people are aligned what their problems are and how do you again two questions here you know how do you get the inputs from people on the ground in terms of listening to their questions or concerns and the next one being as a leader you somehow have to keep so much information in your mind and some of it has to be discarded some of it has to be updated how do you do all that i don't know that i can give you any formula for that chitra <laughs> but uh, yeah but the, but the first part right actually when when you engage in this virtual coffee sessions uh, or coffee sessions okay the first thing is to basically just listen right because you are trying to get to know what the individuals are doing at that particular time or in some cases you already no because uh, you know maybe there has been some release and you know somebody has contributed and um, or there has been a particular innovation or maybe it has got to do with a firefighting situation whatever right you you have some knowledge that yeah there was some person who was involved in that and so maybe in a team of uh, 10 people in that coffee session you know a little bit about two or three people uh, already when you get in there but there are maybe some people who you don't know the specifics and and you initially just listen right to say what is it that is keeping you occupied right now and you know what is it that uh, uh, you have learned sort of right in these last uh, you know is there something new that you have actually picked up and in the course of that discussion then you start connecting the dots right because you have a little bigger picture you have a little more context and you try to bring in that perspective as to when so let's say somebody has actually brought in an innovation right and then you are trying to actually give them a context of how important this is not just from a point of view of let's say efficiency or business but maybe the other possibilities that it can lead to and the kind of things that actually triggers off in the rest of the folks also because then you kind of try to actually pass on that value or you try to trigger that kind of a value in some of the other people who may not be doing that uh, similarly you're just trying to connect the dots i mean a good example for me was that and this is more recent uh, you know one of the teams uh was helping me with the uh, robotic process automation and the solution they came up with was so neat that uh, i actually forced uh, a conversation uh, with some of the other people in the group because i felt that this actually can be taken further across right so you get these nuggets right you, you may not get that if you did not actually have those conversations or you may not understand them in as much detail if you did not have those conversations and if you did not do that little bit of a diligence you may not be able to exploit it as much uh, for the benefit of uh, the organization so those are some of the things that that you but you have to of course you know like you rightly said you know there are so many things happening and you try to connect the dots and you say okay you know this leverage is is good in other cases it is good information but maybe it is just filed away and maybe two weeks later it may be <laughs> revived again i don't know there will be those kind of things yeah i certainly wish there was some kind of a, a framework or Uh, some sort of guidelines that could help you build up that kind of muscle or mm. you know build a kind of exercise regimen around it that would enable you to you know constantly to keep you connected or staying in touch but yeah i hope i hope something like that comes up soon enough well you know there are you know uh, some some of these things in my mind actually is about how you build your uh, memory also right and uh, i have a habit of taking down copious notes okay so earlier i used to write now i type mostly because mostly it is online um, and there are ways to link uh, those ideas also right now right uh, even in a tool like notes you can do that but there are better tools i don't use the other tools so much 
I use note uh, mostly. And I, I, I take copious notes, right? So that whole exercise of just taking notes reinforces several things in the memory, right? And they may be filed at a point where at some point you know that you can go back and refer it. And sometimes that just helps in connecting the dots when you actually see them. Oh yeah, something is absolutely as, as simple as that. And it it's kind of helped me as well. So coming on to, uh, you know, what you are doing at Quicksilver now in the role of a CTO, how is that role different from that of more, more of management from, from a people standpoint towards, uh, you know, something like looking at technology and overall in the context of both business and customers? It's been a very, very interesting journey. Okay. Quicksilver, uh, as I mentioned earlier, pioneered the concept of digital prepaid gift cards in India. And now the solution extends to various ways in which prepaid uh, solutions can be used, right? Whether it is for cashbacks or refunds or loyalty, and it is spread across, uh, you know, what we call as closed loop, semi-closed loop or open loop uh, solutions. Uh, closed loop being what you can use only within uh, that particular brand and open loop means like a Visa or a MasterCard, which you can use anywhere. The journey has been fantastic, but I just wanted to uh, clarify one thing, okay? I mean, uh, I'm sure that out there, people probably have their idea about what a CTO role should be like. And I'll just tell you a little bit about what CTO means to an, an organization like uh, like Quicksilver. Because when, when we were at NetApp, uh, Jitra, clearly the CTO was not directly in line with the release uh, management or release uh, drivers and execution and so on, right? He may have influenced it, but was not directly involved. For a small organization like Quicksilver, you know, the startup ecosystem and so on, uh, the CTO pretty much has the responsibility for both the strategy and the execution. So people management doesn't really go away. And it's actually a very important part of it because you want to build a culture. And that is uh, also an important responsibility in the process. In my journey, you know, various elements, right? Uh, uh, I got a lot of satisfaction in terms of engaging with customers, evolving the product portfolio uh, as we brought hundreds of merchants and corporates onto our platform. And not only that, right, we enable the product uh, capabilities and, you know, the, made it possible for us to foray into the international markets. So we now have customers in Southeast Asia, in Europe, in Middle East, in Australia. And in this sense, you know, I would say that you know, very proudly, right? I, I feel we are an MNC out of India, right? Because uh, in the past, whenever we've talked about MNCs, it's been the other way around where it's really uh, a company incorporated in the US or in Europe or whatever, and they have a center here. For us, it's been the other way around where our product first made its presence felt in India. We have more than 90% market share in India. And from there, we have actually gone off into the, you know, the, the other countries beyond our geography and being able to be very successful in terms of convincing our customers, being able to actually see that our product has capabilities that really are very, very good uh, and meeting their expectations and being able to really make a difference over there. In this whole process, right, the, the thought process now changes in terms of various elements that you need to manage because apart from execution, there's a whole aspect about how does that actually mean in terms of production systems, right, and the deployment because we are managing it in a SaaS environment now, right? In the past, a lot of our, uh, my experience was actually building enterprise class products, but which were deployed on-premise. And now we are talking about an enterprise class, which is a SaaS product, 
where now you have actually like hundreds of customers on a single platform. And what does it mean really to push the envelope for scale, for performance, for resiliency? Very, very different. More importantly, actually, what does it really mean when you're trying to build features? You have to think about these requirements that come from individual customers and then say, what does it mean at the product level? How do you really convert it to a core product feature? The SaaS always needs to have a core product approach. It's like almost a, uh, you know, fanatical or a zealous kind of an approach to say that we want only one code base, no matter. It has to be one single, even though we may be looking at uh, requirements coming from different customers, it's really about saying, what is the product feature that will enable this? How do we really take it to 10 other customers after that and 20 others after that? So that's actually been one of the very, very important aspects of this. Even in, in this, right, the some of the aspects of functional requirements are, are very, very easy to, to realize. I mean, it doesn't take that big a deal to say that you're able to build a required API or that you're able to build a required user interface and so on. But what does it really mean to deliver to the non-functional requirements, right? Some of them are stated, some of them are really completely implicit, right? What is scale? What does it mean when you have concurrency? What does it really mean when you want to make sure that you give a really good user experience even when your systems are not working well? Those are really very, very important aspects to consider in how the product evolves and how the product solutions get built. And to me, that has been one of the very important aspects of how we have evolved the product at, uh, at Quicksilver. You know, when we, when we started the, the, uh, seeing big customers coming onto our systems, we had customers who would demand like um, 15, 20 transactions per second. Today, our systems are benchmarked beyond 1,000 transactions per second. So we are very, very comfortable in terms of how we can actually deal with some of the scale and how we are able to manage some of these things. Because you always have to stay at least 5x ahead of the customer demand because you want to be able to actually do that. But at the same time, not add more to the infra, not more add more to your costs from operations, right? So those are the other challenges that you have to do. But one of the other elements, and I'm going back to what you talked about from a customer perspective, and I must say that in my role in the CTO shoes at Quicksilver actually give me a little better understanding or empathy to the different personas, okay? It is not, not always that you see so many different kinds of customers that you have to keep in mind when you build your solution. Over here, um, we, we are talking about end consumer who may buy and use our products like a gift card. Uh, we have a cashier who may be using it at the store and you know fulfilling your order request. Uh, we have a manager at the outlet who has to deal with some support issues or who has to deal with some bulk purchases and such things. Uh, we have an administrator who needs to set up things and needs to be able to control the uh, various parameters. Uh, we have developers who integrate with our APIs. We have our own operations and support teams which have their own challenges in the way things have to be set up or uh, help desk requests have to be managed and so on. And so our, our solution has to actually consider all these angles, right? It does not help us if my internal customers are not happy and my external customers are happy because it will slow down the business. We do have to consider all these elements. Of course, we have to keep a balance and the prioritization is important in that regard. But certainly all these aspects are important. And uh, you know, every time you think about this, I do remember Dave Hitz in our days at NetApp when he used to say, understand what the product means to our customers and what will happen if my product fails for that customer. 
Right? So what will happen to the end customer? What, what will happen to the cashier? What will happen to my support team? What will happen to my IT team? So all those things have to be part of that consideration in terms of building a really good scalable enterprise class SaaS product. And just the range, right, has actually pushed me into a different zone of learning, a different zone of growth that I, you know, I personally have enjoyed a lot. That's really fascinating to listen to, Sanjay. In fact, I hope we can have several conversations around all of these considerations. In my mind, I think each of them merits an episode by itself, <laughs> especially the, yeah, the transition from on-prem to delivering software as a service and you know, companies having sort of become more product-led where the power of buying and choosing a solution lies more and more with all of those personas that you just described. I think it's going to be fascinating and very challenging days ahead for product companies. Certainly, the way you described it looks like you know, you're already, in some sense, heading in that direction and maybe even leading the way. Yeah, and, and the, the, the other big shift for me, Chitra, was uh, the agility that was uh, required. You recollect our days in NetApp when our releases would easily take more than a year. Yes. Right. Even before that, when I was at Nortel, the the, uh, the telecom systems that we talked about were fairly large. Okay. I mean, four months to six months was quite a given for a release. Okay. And adoption of that release was also not immediate. Right. I mean, you you made a release and maybe over the next six months or a year, uh, that release was adopted by the existing customers because they had their own processes of certifying the new release and adopting it and whatnot. Um, over here, given the SaaS model and given the need to actually move fairly quickly, we work in a certainly in an agile mode and we, we tend to have a six-week sprint for, uh, sorry, a, a two-week sprint, but a six-week release. So within three sprints, we typically make a release. And the aim is always to get some incremental capability onto the production system and complete in that regard, right? Uh, it may not be that for a given customer, his overall solution is complete or not. He may have to wait for two releases, but whatever we push on the production is complete and it's adding value to at least a set of customers. So that happens very, very rapidly. And that also required me to learn new tools, new techniques, the agile process with all the continuous integration, continuous delivery pipelines, all of those things, right? A lot of lessons and structuring the organization for that, being able to create a path that will allow us to shift left very quickly uh, in terms of how early we find issues so that we don't discover them when we push things to production. Uh, those things have been actually very, very interesting in the journey. You know, moving from there on and, um... I know that this, this the foundation that is named after your daughter, you know, is a is a big thing for you. How has that influenced what uh, you've done? And you know, I when we spoke last time, you also mentioned that you were eventually also looking to see how you could, you know, pay it forward in some sense for uh, children and in the context of education today. Would you like to share something about that? That is a very core part of what I am. And uh, thanks to you uh, for giving me this chance to speak about that. So we, we lost Arundhati in September 2014. Okay. She was uh, a PG student at CMC Valore. The day she met with the accident, I was away in the US. So that was actually uh, sort of a double whammy for me. And uh, my wife, Shibangi, had to manage a lot of things on her own. She met with a horrific accident. And so 
we resolve to put our energy into improving road safety. You know, every hour, some 15 to 16 people die on our roads. India has a dubious distinction of being number one in this record. So we blame authorities and, you know, I won't say that we are wrong. Uh, they are justified complaints. The potloads on our roads, uh, the hums are non-standard, uh, the signage is poor or missing, lighting is poor or missing. Maybe there's no mechanism to calm the traffic stream in certain situations. You know, I do feel that the civic agencies should be held accountable, that's for sure. But are these the only reasons? Once we go into some of the details, we do realize that a lot of accidents are because of human errors. And human errors compound the problem that the road conditions present. So imagine if somebody's over speeding and there are potholes. Imagine if somebody's over speeding or driving rash and the lighting is poor. So these are the things that we think are avoidable and that we can actually do something to avoid that. We also think that parents are role models for their children, right? Um, so it is incumbent on us to exhibit model good road behavior. As an example, if you use the mobile phone when driving, if you do not wear seat belts, if you do not use helmets, then don't be surprised if your children are likely to do the same. So while you know I, we do sessions with the, the adults also, what we felt was the need to actually pass on these messages in a consistent and a sustained manner to the school children, because they are the future. They are the ones who can actually take it forward. It's very hard to actually influence an adult and say, do it differently, because adults feel that they know everything. And in most cases, you know, when it, we talk about something like uh, using the mobile phone while driving, most people have the concept that, you know, I'm in control, you don't need to tell me. Right. So we work with the school children because they are the future. And we have some nice, unique programs, like we have Safety Quest, a quizzing uh, platform. Uh, we have a hazard mapping module that convey these messages of safety in a, in a very, very engaging manner. Right? And we have sort of divided it into uh, age-appropriate material. So for the children from for the primary school, it's slightly different. For the adult children, it is slightly different. And we also work with like-minded people and organizations to influence policy. You know, the whole aim over here has been really to work with school children because they are the future and that we think they can actually carry this message. They can maybe influence their parents, but more importantly, if they actually retain even a fraction of it, it will probably help us for the future. And so my key message to all listeners, and in this particular case, I'm sure the listeners will be adults. So my request is that we should all recognize that we do have problems with the roads, but let us make sure that our road behavior does not lead to anybody else suffering from that. Take responsibility for what we're doing. And if you take even one thing away from this, just remember, hands-free is not risk-free. Thank you, Sanjay. That's certainly a very, very powerful message. And thank you so much for sharing it here. I'm sure this is a really strong message for our listeners. We've been having a very interesting and long conversation, but I can't leave this conversation without asking you a message for aspirants as well, you know, looking to get into the field of either software or technology. What is it that you would like to leave them with? So I have two parts, I think, to, to this. Okay. The first is, you know, I'm, I'm a sports buff and, I, I, you know, there are various elements of, uh, I, I may not be as quick with all statistics nowadays as I used to be in the past, but I love sport and I love the process that coaches and the sportsmen go through. 
right? And as most sports coaches will tell you, focus on the process to improve because your first competition should be yourself. And for that, you need to recognize that you're putting in your best and then you're trying to better your best. That is the first thing that you should be basically looking for. Um, in that process, there are very, various elements that come in, right? As to how you practice, who are the people you practice with. Uh, because if you practice with people who are less good, I mean, in the sport, let's say, you will feel you're, you're great. And sometimes it helps to get your confidence, okay? But if you want to really push your game, you have to actually compete with the best. There's also the element of perseverance that comes over there because you don't get these results overnight, right? And, and you have to actually stick with, with that. There's also a lesson about learning from others and how you pick from others. What are the things that you can pick from others? Not everybody is skilled at every single thing, right? But you will pick up various things. Maybe it is about how well somebody is actually convincing or, or negotiating, or maybe it is about a very elegant design, or maybe it is about really a very simple design, right? And that actually makes a big difference because simplicity will always beat you know, the complexity in, in terms of realizing features. The other thing I wanted to mention over here, and this is really the question about, are you an entrepreneur or are you actually working in a, in, in a sort of a job environment, right? And to me, that is an analogy of a love marriage versus an arranged marriage. You know, the entrepreneurs follow their passion. If you're an entrepreneur, you will chart your own course for sure. And that passion will definitely be coupled with the willingness to put in the long hours. And very often, this, is, this love marriage will lead to the baby, which is the organization that you will build and the solution that you will build and how you will take it forward. Right? For the others, it is loving what you do. right? But it is an arranged marriage where the love develops over time. And it requires a fundamental attitude or, a, or an attitude of being open and, and constantly pushing yourself to share and learn, whether it is technology, whether it is business, whether it is operations. And it's also about giving, right? which leads to better teamwork, better organization outcome, because you're thinking beyond your own narrow task. So the more you give, the more you will grow. So this is a couple of things that I thought could be shared. A beautiful message, Sanjay. I, I don't think anybody has ever provided this kind of analogy. So uh, thank you so much for your time. And I will certainly look forward to more conversations with you. Thank you, Chitra. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And thanks for being a COVID warrior and helping everybody in these difficult times. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.